Hello, hello. This is Reality of Reality. I'm Aliza Rosen, a longtime TV producer and development executive. Every week on the podcast, I talk to interesting people in all aspects of unscripted content. Today on the podcast, Gail Gilman. Gail's one of those women in this industry I've heard a lot about for years, but we had never met. I couldn't have been happier to finally meet her and have the chance to talk to her about her storied career. Gail's had three chapters so far in her career, all in unscripted content, but all wildly different. She started off in documentary TV at A&E, then ran male-skewed programming for Tom Beers, and now she's doing digital content in the young adult realm. So we get into all of that and have a really good time chatting. Okay, we are recording. I am here with Gail Gilman. Welcome, Gail. Hello. Thank you for coming to my house all the way from the beach. <laughs> Thank you for having me. From the from the water to the mountains. From the water to the mountains. So I always start with saying how I know my guest. And even though we've just met, I've been hearing your name for so many years from the wonderful Lynn Kirby, who's a very good friend of both of ours. She is a very big fan, as you know, of you. Um, and she's just, yeah, I gotta meet Gail. You gotta meet Gail Gilman. You gotta meet Gail Gilman. So finally, I'm like, I gotta meet Gail Gilman. Lynn Kirby is really, you know, my, my, my fan, I guess I should, I should hire her to do my PR. How did but, you guys meet? Well, we met a number of years ago now in New York when she was working at, was Court TV and I was working at A&E. Oh, back in the day. Back in the day. And we must've come together because there was an employee that went back and forth that connected us. But once we met and we realized we were both having our, I was having my first and she, and she was having her first child together that we had a lot in common, a lot more than just what we did for our day jobs. Yeah. And so now that she's out here in LA in the last few years, um, I see her all the time and I'm, I'm great. I'm grateful to be connected with her again. She's wonderful. I had her on the podcast and we were joking. I joke with her all the time because she was one of the very few people when I was living in Philly and she was in New York that I confided that we were going, we were thinking about moving. And the next time I saw her and she said, oh, you should live in my brother's guest house in Malibu while you're looking. And then literally the next time I saw her, she's like, oh, we're moving. And I always say, bitch stole my luck. And I said, wait a minute, no, we're moving. And then like it took us six more months to like get it together and sell our house and everything. And she was yeah. out here before me. Yeah, no, she's amazing. She seems to always be everywhere too she's and know everyone. everyone. She knows everyone. And by the way, everyone who knows her lives for her yeah. as one does. And I always say she is the single smartest person in our business. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I say, I always say you're too smart for our business, but that's enough about Lynn. Let's talk about Gail. <laughs> Lynn, we're done with you. Um, so you have a really interesting, I love, I'm so glad that you're on because you have a background that like totally fits, you know, squarely in like what I'm, the people that I'm used to talking about, which is, you know, in the unscripted and documentary space, which I love. And then you've got this kind of new chapter two of your career, which is wildly interesting, which is sort of like you're in this, you know, the whole digital space and, you know, especially like with the young adult and with girls and with women. So I can't wait to talk about all of it, but I would like to start at the beginning. Now you are from Maine, which is beloved to me because I lived there for a while. Yay, Maine. Yay, Maine. You grew up in a little town and then went to school in New Hampshire at Dartmouth. We got that before, before the pod. <laughs> and then what happened after college? Well, I thought I would become a famous journalist. You know, I'd become, I was an a English writer. Major. Or, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I were you doing a lot the paper? of writing okay. and I was doing, yes, all the things you do in college, the newspaper, the magazines, et cetera. I had a really fun internship in a local TV station while I was there in New Hampshire. So I thought that that would be, you know, I'd be a journalist. 
And when the New York Times didn't hire me out of college, I was completely gutted. And so I decided mean. to go find something else to do. And then it was the New York I, Times or bust. <laughs> it was the New York Times or that was it. I like so it. So I found my way to New York City and I started working uh, there, originally in advertising, and then knew right away that I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to get into journalism and maybe even storytelling. And I had this moment where I thought, what about becoming like, what are the intersection of that, which is documentary filmmaking in my mind. So I took some classes at NYU because at Dartmouth, I had done nothing related (laughs) to film at all. I didn't know anything about production. So I took some classes at NYU and that really gave me the confidence to go out and say I could be in that industry. You know, I, I had the writing end and the storytelling ability, but I didn't really have any production background. So I did that. And one day while I was taking a class in a bathroom, I ran into a woman who worked at National Geographic. And I literally went up to her and put my hands on her shoulders. And I said, National Geographic, that is my dream job. Wait, how did you, in a bath? did you say in a bathroom? <laughs> I was in a ladies room. But where? I was at the new school. I wasn't at NYU. I was also taking some classes at the new school at that time because I was, you know, young and in New York and trying to right. get into the industry. But how did you know she worked there? She was, ch- she was chatting with someone else and telling oh, them. Oh, I love And so I overheard her and I just come running out of the stall and I grabbed her and I was like, oh did my God. Did you wash your hands first? Uh, n- no. <laughs> she had a like, jacket get on. get away. <laughs> I know. She still actually stayed and talked to me. She didn't run away. I love it. So she handed me her card. We had a conversation and the next day I was on the phone with somebody who was looking to hire someone in the development department. This is great. This a woman is- named Pam Hogan who became my mentor and she's amazing. I'm just going to give her a shout out. She's still working as a producer, a successful producer in New York. So yeah, that was, it is about where you are, not well, always what you know. It's, yeah, I agree. It's funny. I'm, I don't know if I've told this story before, but um, similar to, to you, I was getting my nails done trying to find a job out of journalism school. And I was sitting next to a woman. And I, my dream was to get into news magazine, like 60 minutes. And I was sitting next to a woman who was wearing a 48 hours hat. And I was like, one, two, three. Hi, I'm, da, 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 da. you know, and this is like, you know, I was trying for months to get a job. No, same as no one would hire me. And she took a shine to me. We like bonded and Alex Wallace is her name. Um, and she became my mentor also and has helped, you know, was the person I always went to. So anyway, my point of bringing it up is that it's not just where you are. It's taking advantage of the moment. And there's a lot of young people that reach out to me from hearing the podcast, which I love. And I always say, like, you have to make the opportunities happen. And there's always that fine line, right? You don't want to be annoying. And like, sometimes it might be perceived as that. But if you don't do it, no one's going to come. She's not going to come into the stall and find right. you. <laughs> she wasn't going to just strike up a conversation, maybe. But you have to kind of be ready at any moment when you meet someone. And that's one thing I really loved about New York, because for another podcast, I'll tell you, I met my husband on the subway. But oh my that's God. for a different day. Oh, so no, just, can you just that, say really quick? I have to hear Actually, it. there is a little bit of a connection to that, to my to career, okay. I guess, because um, after I got the job at National Geographic and I was happily working there, I was riding the subway uptown to my house and somebody on the subway next to me turned, uh, turned to me and said, oh, do you work at National Geographic? And How was, did he know? I had a bag hanging <laughs> on my shoulder with the big, all, oh uh, with the big logo, you know, the gold Stop. border. And so I said, yeah. And he said, oh, I work at Dateline um, over at Rock Center. Um, really nice to meet you. I was just thinking about, you know, a story I'm doing on the Galapagos. And I was thinking about Nat Geo. 
Get so, out of here. I swear. Is that the biggest Wait, what's line? his name? His name is Jeff Swimmer. Okay. And so... So he was a news producer. He was a news producer, you know, and what was taking the, the same <gasps> subway from the same area of town up town. So did he ask you out? Um, not then in that moment, because as it turned out, we were both, you know, seeing someone else. Right, but right. But you kept in over touch. Over the last year, yeah. We oh kept my in God, touch. That and, is the best story. That was, you know, so I think all New York roads, yeah, but presents all roads a lot of opportunities. Lead yeah. to Nat, Nat all Geo. Road, all and too. so, what was the development department back then in the day at National Geographic? So, we had a very robust development department. And I, we had original development, we had co production development. That's where I was. So, I was really looking at proposals that came into us from outside producers and working to develop them. And back then when we were doing co-productions with the BBC and Connell Plus and ABC Australia and big natural history producers yeah. and things, there was a lot of uh, development that went on with other big partners. So that was kind of my entree into it. So cool. And just the most incredible stuff. Oh, you so know, inspiring. the big sweeping blue chip. Yeah. The blue chip stuff. I worked on the Explorer series. Wow. So many talented people and filmmakers and just everything. It was kind of everything that you wanted it to be when you were from the outside and you were thinking like they make these amazing films right. with these amazing people off in Africa. Did you, you get know, to go in the life. field? I wasn't in the field at all. I did a lot of traveling as a development executive, right. but I wasn't in the field. And I remember the first time I went to Africa a few years ago, I felt like it had come full circle. Yes. Like, you're suddenly, like, I'm living in I the documentary. In one of the films I'm developed. Amazing. Yeah, it was exciting. So then how did you end up at A&E then? Well, sadly for me, after I'd been at Nat Geo about three years, they decided that they were going to close that office and move everybody to Washington, D.C. That didn't really jive with my personal yeah, life. That's not going to work. Because <laughs> I'd met the guy in the subway. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here. You know, uh, they were offering us to take most of us with them at the time for my office, but I wanted to stay in New York. So I met somebody who knew someone who that and said they're looking for someone to, in programming at A&E. And at the time... Michael Cascio was running yeah. the documentary department and I went and had an interview with him and I uh, ended up over there working under him on investigative reports, biography and American justice, a lot of their big, you know, crime and Were you there when justice. Peter Tarsha started also? Yeah, I knew Peter. Peter's a good friend of mine. Oh. I love him. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's, he's great. another very smart, way too smart for TV person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, wow. So that's cool. So you were there like in the early days. Yeah, it was the early days. Early-ish. It was kind of the early-ish. Yeah, it was kind of, I mean, the heyday of biography, winning mm -hmm. Emmys every year. Yeah, that was how we got into business um, was through biography with Tom Moody and Peter. Yeah. So and was Tom there? when you were there or you had already left by then? Um, I don't think Tom was there. He okay. may have started as I was leaving and we were already getting into the scripted business wow. that was being, you know, run initially, you know, for, with a lot of co-productions from the UK. And so it was a really exciting time to be at A&E. There was just expanding opportunity all the way around. And were you doing actual producing or were you more on the development side? No, I was on the development side. I was the director of documentaries at that time. What an so amazing job. It was it was awesome. Yeah. It was so much fun. And then I how long it. was that? I was there for about three years. Okay. And I did an amazing amount of content and I did some awesome things. I, I did a film called The Farm, which is a project really near and dear to my heart. I'm so glad you brought this up because first of all, Sundance... Second of all, Academy Award nomination. Yeah. 
I mean, huge. Yeah. I, I'm so embarrassed that I haven't seen it because I've I've heard of it obviously over the years, forever. And for some reason, have not, how can I see it now? It is online. You can find it online. Okay. Uh, and it is. It, I think it does. It does still stand up. Yeah. You know, sometimes when films have been you yeah. know, a little older, they don't. But it was a year in the life of the oldest prison in America that was previously a slave plantation and now is um, a prison for pretty much lifelong inmates. Still many exists. Of them on def- mm-hmm, many of them on death row. And you followed five of them. Yes, over the course of a year. And we tried to look at a cross-section of people, people who had just been, you know, it was their first year they were coming in and people who were on death row and people who had been there. So we had a whole range of people to and get the full experience. And that was produced by Jonathan Stack and Liz Garbus oh at the God. time, who were just starting out. Liz was just starting oh, out wow. in her career. And yeah, it was, it was super exciting. And it was a kind of groundbreaking project for the time. I mean, you know, crime and justice is still very, is again, and, and always really is a popular genre, but it was really one of the big projects of that, of that time that had a really in-depth look at what it's like to live inside a prison of that magnitude. So did Liz and Jonathan come to you and say, we have an idea? Had they shot something already? Like what was the genesis of it? Yeah, they had gotten access to film at Angola. And of course, this was in the wake of Dead Men Walking. And the kind of pitch was, we've got the real life Dead Men right, Walking. Right, right. Ding. ding, 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 ding. Yeah. And so that, you know, made a lot of sense to me that people would be interested in that topic anyway, and they had access. So they came to us and said, we want to make this for investigative reports. So I took it forward, we got it approved. And in, during the course of making it, because we had a one hour series called investigative reports that we were going to put it under. But in the course of making it, as I was seeing the rough cut come in I, and Jonathan's enthusiasm and, and seeing how much there was to to cover, he said, we've got to do this as a two hour. We've got to do this as a big two hour special. So we agreed to do that. And then that gave it the opportunity to become actually a theatrical release. So we, held it back. We didn't release it. We released it theatrically, you know, at Sundance, actually at Sundance. It only had a brief theatrical release after that, but so it went to Sundance and then it was nominated for an Oscar. So incredible. What, what was the Sundance experience like? So the Sundance experience was amazing. I unfortunately was eight and a half months pregnant. Oh no, so you couldn't even travel. <laughs> so I couldn't travel. It's one of the sad things oh, of my, so uh, yeah, of my career that I missed that. But I got this amazing phone call. I was sitting in New York on a snowy night and I got this amazing phone call from them screaming at the top of their lungs. Wait, that's what? And so it won the jury me. award. Yeah, it won the jury award. That so year. incredible. So it was, um, well, it won the audience award, okay. I think, just to. What is, what's, oh right. I think it was, the, you know, that's even popular. more, that's yeah, even more yeah, prestigious. Exactly. In some that's ways. incredible. So it was super exciting. And, um, and then you know, when Liz, it got nominated for an Oscar, I mean, and that was, yeah, I mean, another huge moment. <laughs> did you go to the, did, were you able to go to the Oscars? So, <laughs> oh no, you were pregnant again. <laughs> well, I wasn't, but I had just moved to London to take a job with Channel 4. So I, by that time, because they did it, you okay. know, it kind of was like at the end of that next year. So I had moved to London oh. and I had this one year old that I had given <gasps> birth to. And so logistically it was super challenging for me to get there given this new job I just started and everything. Yeah. And so I didn't go to the, to the Oscars, but, um, you were there in spirit. What an amazing accomplishment. Yeah. That's I was just so, so proud of that, of that film yeah. and everything that they did and all the, um, 
recognition that it did eventually get because sometimes you work really hard on a project like that and it is so good and for some reason it doesn't, doesn't catch on yeah get, yeah and it doesn't really get the recognition it deserves and and that one did I think so wonderful how did the job at channel four happen <laughs> that's a major life change <laughs> that was and and that was kind of exactly what you said that was really why that job happened it was a major life change because after I had had my uh, first child my husband and I were kind of deciding what to do with uh, should we move to a bigger house you know we're living in a little New York apartment and so we were kind of trying to figure out what was next I loved my job at A&E but at the same time I was trying to put you know the other elements together as you do and I knew somebody who worked at Channel 4 and had just been named the managing director of International. His name is Bernard McLeod. And he was somebody who was in the States working, doing some projects for PBS at the time. And I met him at a, um, been at a party or something. And so he said, hey, I am going back to take this job at Channel 4 because he's British. And mm-hmm. would you like to come? I'm looking to bring a programming executive from the U.S. Oh my God. with me who can help facilitate the co-productions that go on between Channel 4 and the U.S. broadcasters. And you had already had that experience from Nat Geo. That's incredible. So That's like a dream a job, literally. So that was, yeah, another dream job. Another dream job. It was, I had lo- always loved the programming Channel 4 had done. Yeah. And I found the whole place very inspiring. Yeah, so, just so, London. Yeah, such and a being cool... in London. So I thought... What about your husband, though? Did he come? Oh, he was totally <laughs> excited. But what was he doing at that point that was, you know, that made him able to do that? So he was producing at the time. He'd left okay. the job at NBC, but Got he had, was producing documentaries. And so he said, okay, I'm, I'm up for it. He had lived in London once before briefly as a journalist. So he said, let's, let's do it. It'll be awesome. He was over the moon. So, and your kids and the, young enough. Or they my only, kids were young right. enough. And my, it, Actually, the visa was very generous going that way. So he was able to work wherever he wanted to. So he just started working for hosted different people freelancing, just like he would have here. Yeah, that's while perfect. I was working at Channel Four. And how so long was that stint for? I was there almost three years. <laughs> that seems thing. to be my magic number. Yeah. <laughs> three years everywhere I go. And then it's done. Um, and <laughs> I would have stayed longer. He was kind of ready to come back. He's like, okay, this weather. Right. You know, you can take it's the boy out of California. But, <laughs> Did he grow up here? Yeah. yeah. So he would go around in the winter turning every light in the house on. Like, That's Jeff, hilarious. You know, you've got to get some sun. <laughs> so we came back to the States and that's when we came to LA because he's from here. And then did you have a job when you came back? No, I didn't <laughs> have a job. I had two little kids because I'd had my son... Uh, my second in London. So he was six months old at the time. It was a lot moving from London to here with the two little kids. Yeah, and so I came without a job. And but I knew a number of people that were here. And as it turned out, I connected with a company called RDF Media that was from the UK. And I almost just a couple of months later started working with them as a an executive kind of developing projects and overseeing a lot of the things that were in production here. I just had on Carrie Wolf from Kinetic. Oh, with Chris yeah, Cullen. I know Carrie very yeah, well. Yeah, so we talked about how they ended up at RDF. Yes. And it's so funny how all the little Chris connected was our circle. Right. At, so, was RDF. And that was a huge deal when he left uh, the agency to go to RDF. Yes. So we talked about that whole transition. Yeah. So you guys did overlap there. Yeah. Well, I knew, yes, because Chris was our agent and he was selling in all the new projects. RDF really set up here to produce um, Junkyard Wars because they were doing so many episodes in the course of doing it for both the BBC and for 
TLC, I think that was the two plays if I have it right. So they were producing year round almost these episodes. So they said, well, let's set up in LA and we'll grow our business over there in the format space, which they did. And they brought Wife Swap here when I was there. And that's how I really got to know Chris because he was representing them at that time and he sold Wife Swap into ABC. (laughs) So crazy. I know it's a small world, right? Yeah. And then, so that's where you, so you were at RDF for a long time. I was there for two or three years. Oh, three years. Three years. My three year number probably. <laughs> oh, so for funny. some reason I thought it was longer. Okay. <laughs> I don't think so. But th- that, when I left RDF, I had my twins. So there's, so always- there's four, in case you're counting at home, that's four kids total, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, just no big at this deal. point, no big deal. Yeah, four add two or five, more, six, right. it doesn't you, matter. You can't keep track. After one, it's all totally you know, downhill. Same. I mean, uphill. <laughs> yeah. You don't really notice. So I think that there were, I took a gear or two off then because you know, it was it's hard enough to take a shower, <laughs> let alone get myself to work yeah. in any kind of shape. So <laughs> and it was amazing. I mean, having twins is a super exciting thing. And it was my the best production we ever did. I, yeah. And so I did, I was at home for a couple of years. And then when I went back so to- So wait, stop there for okay. a second. I'm just curious. What was that like going from, you know, you would always has a job, you always had a high level job to, you know, had kids in the meantime. It wasn't like you weren't mommying while you were working, but what was it like to just leave- I always wonder about that. Like, just leave the business for however many years. Did it feel like, what did it feel like? I'm so glad you asked me that. Uh, it felt really weird. <laughs> you feel like you're on some weird extended vacation. And you feel like you're playing hooky. Right. I had never not had a job. Right. I worked from the minute I graduated from college. And it is weird to suddenly step off that wheel and to not go into work and to not have something, you know, regular to do like that. And I guess the good thing is for me, I didn't have too much time to think about it <laughs> because at that point I had four kids who were under seven. Oh my God. And I really had my hands full. Uh, I had not been trying to get pregnant. And so when you discover you're pregnant and you have twins, wow. you're having twins, it is a game changer. It, it, it turns everything in your life, as you know, it upside down. So you have to rethink everything you do. You have to get a good car, a new car that can fit six people. You have to get a new house. You have to, you have a lot to do. So I was very, very busy. So I didn't have time to dwell on it a lot, but. But you could attack it like a producer too. Yeah. I was so busy (laughs) that I didn't have time to, you know, kind of like wonder what I'm going to do being at home now because I I didn't have time to be bored or, you know, that would have been harder if I had just decided to like be home with one or something. I don't know. I think that would have been hard for me because I am somebody who constantly needs to be busy. Yeah. And so, and I did feel a little bit, I knew it wasn't going to be forever. Yeah. And so that was another thing that was weird is that it's kind of, you're having one foot in your work life and one in another kind of full-time stay at home life. And I don't think I was patient and 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 I I don't think I would have been the best mom staying home full time so I think I knew I was going to go back to work so it kind of was in the back of my mind but I was able to enjoy it to some extent were you ever nervous about you know getting out and then having to get back in I was I was nervous about that and so in the back of my mind like I said because I was always thinking I I was going to go back to work I needed to go back to work and, you know, I needed to 
paid the rent, right, right. <laughs> paid for college of all yeah. these for all these kids. <laughs> a lot of children. Started saving money. So I knew <laughs> that that was going to happen. And, and it did kind of, after about a year and a half, I started thinking, okay, now let's just begin to like have conversations with people and yeah. let's, let's begin to think about how that might work. Let's begin to, and at the time my husband had made a nice transition and taken a job at Chapman University to run and start the documentary filmmaking program. Oh, wow. So that was a nice opportunity for him to be around more because as a professor, you have very regular hours and he would teach two or three days a week and then be home two or three days a week. So it seemed when that happened that maybe actually it was possible for me to go back to work and for all, because he was before that when he was producing still, right, it was very chaotic and he yeah. was always traveling. <laughs> he missed the birth of those twins, but <gasps> that's another story because he was wow. making a film for National Geographic. Wow. Um, <laughs> everything connects yeah, everything, in my life. Literally. But he, oh so I, I suddenly saw with him being around more, maybe, maybe I could go back to work. And so when the, Twins were about two and a half. I called up uh, at somebody who I'd known in the business for a very long time, who I loved and respected, and his name was Tom Beers. And he has a yeah, company called Original Productions, yeah. which probably most everybody who <laughs> listens to you has, has heard yeah. of. And he said, oh my gosh, you're ready to come back to work. Come on, come out here. I've got a perfect project. It's about a lobster boat. Oh my gosh. And he, you know, Tom, it. only right. Tom can be. Right. And you're a girl from Maine, right? I said, yeah. Oh, so he perfect. just assumes that I know everything about lobster. So out I went and I was working on a show for him. About, it was called Lobster Wars. But yeah. it was about, you know, lobster fishermen off the coast of Maine. Was that for Nat Geo or history? That was for Discovery. Discovery, okay. Mm-hmm. Wait, did you actually go up to Maine to do it? I, so when I started on that project, it, most of it had been shot. It was being okay. shot off the coast of Rhode Island. Got it. And he said, but you know, the producer's out there and I need somebody here yeah. to kind of run, run the whole thing, the story and run everything here. And I thought, perfect, perfect. It's a perfect job for me transitioning yeah. back to work yeah. and having the kids because I can work full time at the, at the office, at the, at his office. So that was great. It was a great transition. I didn't have to travel, but I could, you know, jump back in and be in production I'd never really been full-time on the production side. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a different transition too. Yeah. And actually Tom was, he was the the best person I could have worked for at that time too, because he said to me, he'd been at Turner. So he'd kind of done the same thing, right? He'd been on the broadcaster side and then left and started his own company. And he said, isn't it great to come back and really like roll up your sleeves and get your hands dirty and be making the films rather than overseeing people who are making them? And I said, yeah, it feels, it's super exciting. It's really fun. So you found that you liked that better even? I did. It yeah. was, there was something about it that was just very, you know, the, the, the kind of endorphin high, right? You were the person who was going to like hit the deadlines, you know, get the cuts done, make it work, deliver it. It was, it was, yeah, it was just a step closer, right? Than you, when you're overseeing the films from... Do you think that having been on the network side and having, you know, been the executive that gives the notes and everything that you had a better understanding as a producer then how to kind of, you know, almost preemptively do things that you knew you would get notes on (laughs) having been on the other side? Yeah. Yeah. I do think, you know, what I lacked in probably production and field experience, I'd been in the field only a short time earlier in my in my career, I made up for probably in able, being able to 
talk with the executives, manage that process, know what people were looking for, translate the notes. Because sometimes when they, you get notes, it's not exactly clear what everyone wants you to do. <laughs> so then, but then get that idea and then, you know, kind of implement that and move on and not get too hung up on it. And also not get too upset by it. Right. Really, Sensitive. Because, and, yeah. yeah. It's really just not it's their personal. job. It's the process. It's collaborative. Right. It's making it a better show. And how to sell what you're, what you can do and what you can't do and how to stand up for what you don't think should be changed. You know, there was a whole lot of different pieces Right, which in battles that. to fight, which not. Exactly. So was that how you got into the Fremantle family? Because then Tom became the head of Fremantle, right? Yes. So after being at Original for a number of years, I, st- I ended up staying there and kind of going from Lobster Wars to <laughs> Ice Road Truckers to, <laughs> um, yeah, a two or three different shows. Men doing manly Men things. Do, yeah, t- of testosterone <laughs> TV. Yeah. yeah, it was it was a man's world, and uh, but it was super exciting. I loved the shows, and I I loved the kind of re- of unscripted television that that kind of reality version of it. It wasn't, you know, it was, it was real as it gets. Yeah, you know, you can only well, very documentary. <laughs> people are like, don't you make that stuff up? It's yeah. like, well, no. not really. Yeah. You know, we we do you know, curate the yeah. pieces that are most exciting. But it's and actually dramatic, happening. But all this stuff is going down. Yeah. So that was, I loved that. I love that kind of content. And I love the adventurous nature. And being in Alaska was a highlight. Being in Alaska and being on the road with the production teams, it was it was super exciting. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. yeah. That I'm was, jealous. I, I still want to go there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, not in January when right, I was there. I was going to say, or not. I'm going to recommend you don't go then. God, I hate being but cold. just being in Alaska was awesome. Incredible. So then what was, so then, yeah. So what was the next transition after that? So after I'd done four or five series for Tom, he looked at me in about 2012 and said, what do you think we should be doing in digital? And I said, I don't know, mm-hmm. but we could, you know, look into it and see because, you know, I know that it's growing really fast. Let's um, have a, I'm, I'm willing to, you know, kind of do an exploratory with you. So I started looking at opportunities in short form video and Tom's company had a, had a brand, right? Yes. They did, very, like you just said a few minutes yeah, ago. Man doing man, man doing man manly doing things. things. So it was a, an easy transition to turn that into a, you know, consumer facing totally. brand really. But as we were kind of underway and doing some branded content and, you know, kind of moving in that direction, he was acquired by Fremantle. The right. company was acquired by Fremantle. And then he was offered the job at Fremantle to be uh, the CEO of North America. Which I can't remember if he said it. I think he said it in an interview that I heard, but you know, you can't put someone like Tom Beers in the head, like in a corporate executive job. It's just not a good fit, right? I mean, he's just, he's meant to be entrepreneurial doing his, his rolling up his sleeves, as you said. Yeah, he, he is. And, but he took the job. Right. Having <laughs> said that. And, and did a good job and, with the job. And he did a great job right. like he's, he does. He's and, amazing. And he made a lot of things. And one of the things that he did was really, he could see that digital was emerging. He could see the future. Tom's really. He's a visionary. Yeah, a visionary in, in that way. And so he said, Gail, why don't you come with me and we're going to launch an original digital studio and you're going to run it. Incredible. And I'd been, you know, doing this, you know, kind of nascent digital work under him for several months. And I said, okay, I'm totally down for that. So 
I went over and we launched a kind of independent production group under a label called Tiny Riot. And we were doing content for Vice and Style Hall and, and Fremantle. And we did, you know, some of their formats with YouTubers. I mean, we were, I think, doing some really exciting and awesome content right there. Um, and how did that work? Dollar. Like, did you, was it self-funded or was it like the regular TV model where you would do little sizzles and sell them and then get money to do it? It was a combination. Okay. I mean, this is 2013 yeah, it now, early-ish. so it was pretty early. I yeah. mean, YouTube was out there, right? but not uh, everybody was, you know, kind of finding their way to it. Yeah. So we did a deal. One of the projects that we did is Fremantle had done a deal with Vice. Yeah. And Vice was interested in being in TV. Fremantle was interested in being in digital. They did a deal. So that content was funded by Vice. Mm-hmm. We helped launch their food network called Munchies. Munchies, yeah. Which is great. Love I think it's it. one of their best verticals. Yeah. And so we made half of that content wow. for the launch. Great, great stuff. We did a series called Bong Appetit, which <laughs> actually I think is now on their TV network. It's the best name. <laughs> it was almost too easy. Right, right. right. It's just sitting right there. It was it was actually working with working with Vice on that on that launch of Munchies was one of the most exciting moments of development in my career because it was almost like it could develop itself. You would have an idea and you would say, is this vice? And you just put your vice lens on and you would know immediately, is this work? No, that's not what they would do. They wouldn't do that. It was just a really clear vision. Like it the, had to be badass. It had, it had to, to be, be edgy. Badass. It had to, yeah, it had to have a raw look. It had yeah. to be like, if you were going to do food and or marijuana and cooking, it was going to have to be bong appetit. You know, right. you could actually really right. think about the, um, you know, what would, how, how do you make this look like vice? And yeah. it was very clear how yeah. to do that. So, and who was the team? Was it you and some producers under you? Yeah. I had a team of probably 10 people oh, who were wow. working across a lot of yeah. different yeah. channels because Fremantle had also started a channel called the Pet Collective, which they had gotten money from the Google 2012 initiative to launch in Google's effort to try to get the entertainment community working with YouTube and creating for YouTube. So we had the Pet Collective, we had the Munchies channel, we had, like I said, the, the some Style Hall content because Fremantle's had made an investment into Style Hall or Fremantle's parents. So we had money from kind of each of these little buckets and then I had a staff who worked across everything. So there were people who were working on all of those projects kind of at the same time. So it was a little group of us. So did you find that there were any different, you know, other than the, the the length, right? That just stuff is shorter with digital. Were there any other different muscles that you had to flex um, doing digital as opposed to linear? Like, is there any real, was there any real difference in, and now you're doing that too in the storytelling or the way, or is it kind of the same, just shorter and more concise, I guess? Well, one of the changes from going from, reality and the, and the unscripted reality stuff that we were doing for history and Nat Geo and discovery and stuff at, at Tom's original productions was in digital. We, there was no narrator. Right. So everything. So it was really going back right, to all those pulling shows from my narrated. documentary yeah, yeah. roots, right? So speak for that you're using just what you get from the, <laughs> right. Make the story. Yeah. Make the story happen by doing interviews that mm-hmm. would get you there because yes. narration was never going to work on, yep. on YouTube because no. you, it's too many layers away. <laughs> right. So that was different. You had to kind of go back to those documentary roots, but I loved that because right. like, that's where I'd started. Totally. And, and I, 
that to me was exciting. Also, you had to kind of let go of any kind of structure format, mm-hmm. if you, which was again kind <laughs> right, of first easy act, for me, second act, third right? Act, yeah. Because I was not really ever, you know, married to that. I liked the freedom of, of just being able to kind of make it what you wanted it to be and how you wanted it to do, and you didn't have to fuss over every single frame and minute. You didn't, and you didn't get a lot of notes because right. we were really working really quickly, quick turnaround, yeah. low budgets, putting it up. They just wanted the content up. And getting it up and then letting the audience and the people who actually watch the content give you the feedback. Yeah. So you took out that um, person in the middle, which is you know what I had been as a, yeah, as you a were broadcaster myself, right? <laughs> Someone who's giving notes, the gatekeeper, if you want to call them. And you just took your feedback from the people who were watching. So they gave you lots of thumbs up, comments, and views if they liked it. <laughs> All right. And if they didn't, oh, I'm sure. You know, you suffered and you could, you know, the analytics, you're getting the numbers immediately and you could really, you know, make a lot of, you could, you could ideate and kind of fix things within minutes and days and record the next one differently. Yeah, but it's also so hard to wade through that stuff, right? Like there's just the trolls who hate everything and just want to be assholes. And then there's like the really maybe constructive ones. And you're like, oh, they're actually right about that. Like how do you <laughs> discern what you should, you know, you said you would kind of retool depending on the feedback, but how do you decide what, like what's good feedback? Yeah, it, it can be challenging if you look at the engagement, the, which is, I would call the, the, the comments and the thumbs up and the shares, you know, there's, there's right. engagement things. But if you look at the actual, you go into, you know, YouTube and Google's very robust analytics, analytics platform, you get, you know, a really clear view okay. of when people, how long be- they, watch. how long they stay, right. how, when they begin to turn off, when they fast forward, who's watching, where they're from, right. you know, it's so incredible. You get a, a more in-depth yeah, That's kind so of look at the at the numbers and the data, and but you're still doing a bit of guessing because we all are. You know, did they right. not like the host? Did they not like what right. we we're talking about? You still have to do a bit of guesswork, but it is it, it really gives you a clear indicator, I think, of what people are looking at. Yeah, no, totally. So then you went from Fremantle and you launched Ripple entertainment, which is where you are now. And that's your company. Yes. So exciting. So talk about that. What made you do it? And then what Ripple's all about? So after I had been after two years at Fremantle, not three, not three this time, <laughs> you didn't do your breaking three. the tradition. I think it had been a couple of years. Okay. Tom had made the decision to leave. Right. And I was approached by a company called Red Arrow. Mm-hmm. We know very huge you know. company that owns a lot of other companies. Yes, Kinetic. Are they based out of Germany? Yes. Yes. And they're a you know portfolio company. They own, like right. you said, a lot of production companies. Right. And they were interested in investing in digital. And they were very interested in what I'd been doing at Fremantle in the digital group that I'd started. So they said, hey, we'd love to have you come over and do that with us. And I thought... Okay, well, that's worth a conversation. Yeah, it is. And so we started talking, and eventually what we landed on was not just to come in-house, because going in-house in a traditional media company is not the best place to start a digital <laughs> business. Right. I learned that. Yeah. Uh, and Interesting. Because you just need a little bit more freedom, and you operate differently. So he said, um, Jan, who I was talking to at the time, said, why don't you start a company, and we'll partner with you and finance you. So amazing. 
So and incredible. What, what made you call it Ripple? Well, we just thought it kind of worked for the way that content yeah. is moved across digital platforms. Yeah. They told two of, friends and they told two friends. Yeah, and yeah. they tell two friends who tell two friends and goes, and it so kind on of like and, so rip on. The, and the circle gets bigger and yeah, bigger and bigger. That's a great name. So, yeah, so it was super exciting. And the, the goal really was. Yeah, what was Ripple, the mandate? Yeah, the mandate was to grow audiences around content ideas and around shows and, niche and series and niche audiences. And then hopefully the idea would be to in success to move those up the food chain, if you will, to bigger audiences, maybe TV, maybe streaming or et cetera. So, and maybe into podcasting, which there is you go. also what we've done. So the I future. think that we were using, because they are long form people and television people, you know, they really saw it as a way to incubate and grow ideas the digital business was um, nascent then, and also just it was it was harder to make as much money if you stayed just on the one in one platform, and so you really needed to kind of move across, move the IP that you developed across a number of platforms to really begin to to build a business. So that was the goal. So we launched four YouTube channels thinking maybe one of these will work. And that's kind of what happened. There was a channel we created called Snarled. It was targeted at young females, kind of 24 and under. And it was, I used to call, I used to describe it as, it was really for the outlier girl. It was for the girl who was smart and nerdy and outspoken and funny and creative. And she liked fashion and beauty, which was all over the all over YouTube, <laughs> right, right? Plenty and, of that, <laughs> but it wasn't her primary focus. Uh, she was interested in a lot of these other things. So that was kind of the the kind of white space that we saw, and so that we began to create content and programming, uh, um, you know, that would be for that girl. So, how do you find that audience? How do you then market it to grow an audience digitally? So, you begin by testing things we'd make two we'd get an idea we'd make two or three of them we'd put them up we'd get feedback we'd adapt but how would people even find them to watch them well we did some marketing okay we used um google's platform itself youtube platform and and we would put the content in front of people who we thought who were in our demographic already watching something else and that would be the next video got it and we also then used social media Mm -hmm. to, to do the same thing so we were using in the Instagram, uh, Instagram primarily, Snap. Facebook, Snap, Snap is harder for discovery. Okay. So, and at that time, even just a few years ago, 2016, 17, when we were starting, it was easier to get discovered on YouTube than it is now because there's just so much content so out crazy. there. crazy. Now, let me tell you, if you don't already know, and I'm sure you do, TikTok. Oh, It yeah. is all about TikTok. I have a 12 year old. Oh, I know. And it's just like every day I pray for TikTok's demise. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, please just crash. Somebody figure out that like, you know, they've stolen your identities, something like we need a major scandal to happen. So it shuts it down. My youngest are all all over TikTok too. It's crazy. Yeah. And we're actually developing for one of my shows, a a TikTok. Well, you should be. That's literally the only thing they can. I mean, my daughter will still watch. She does still watch YouTube, but only if I take her phone away. That, that's the next tier is then, you know, it's hard to get them to sit down and watch shows. She does like some shows, but it's crazy, right? Yeah, they no, love the short it's totally form content. Crazy. Yeah. And it's funny because Vine, yeah. you know, was Remember the Vine? first and Vine yeah. was awesome. And then Musical.ly. Was, Musical.ly became TikTok. It became TikTok. And yeah. the first iteration, I was going to say, of 
if you will, of TikTok. Yeah. Musically version. My daughter was about 10 or 12 yeah. then. And I thought I was going to just tear my hair <laughs> out if she did one more lip sync yeah. video yeah. with that weird the voice. Thing, okay, but now it's not, the, it's the arm move. So we were driving the other day, I think it's just in Studio City and seeing tweens, you know, on the corners with their parents doing the moves. I was in Starbucks last week. Same thing, girl was doing it to her mom. And I thought like, it's just my, you know, you live in your bubble and I'm like, oh, just my daughter's because she's also a dancer. So I don't know. And then I'm like, oh my God. Literally, kids around America are just doing these weird arm moves. It's so annoying. <laughs> anyway, listen. No, all and, this and is you, just, you know how, like, you're probably all over TikTok. Yeah. Oh, and you, I, she you're does, probably a TikTok star. She reels me into these videos. Yeah. Well, then, like, yeah, she's showing me Mark Cubans on TikTok. I'm like, who are these people? What's happening? And then, and, so, and sometimes you're in the car driving yeah. and you oh, suddenly I'm, look over yeah. and you're like, stop, stop filming complete, me and stop putting me. Oh, if you put me on Snapchat, I do. And I say, you're doing this without my consent. I did not give you consent. And it really freaks her out. But but listen, all this is to say you hit a good sweet spot, right? You found a perfect audience with Snarled, right? So is it doing so well? Snarled, Snarled, yeah. So Snarled was uh, caught on, you know, yeah, it was just one of those things where we began to see a lot of traction and we began to see a lot of growth. So we started focusing on that channel primarily, not putting right. as much effort into the other channels. Yeah, go where the love is. But we just, you know, you're looking for a right, a hit, and you put out four things, and you <laughs> get one, and you're like, okay, I'm going Double in that down. direction. Yep. So that was super exciting. We were doing a lot of this content. And then one show began to even break away from the pack of the, you know, of all the shows we were doing on the channel. And that show was called Something Scary. Yeah. And it was a paranormal, ghost story, right? paranormal series, but it was Amazing. done... Um, in a way that it was kind of like you, the creator would tell a story to camera, a ghost story, le- a legend, an urban legend, whatever, some kind of paranormal related story, and then animate over it. So it would go back and forth between animation and the storyteller, animation, the storyteller, and it would be six or eight minutes long sometimes. That's an expensive proposition though, right? Because isn't animation really expensive? Well, not if you're <laughs> a young creative okay, you just you know influencer you lots of ways one, to do it's it another thing that you know how to do it's wow, another arrow you have incredible. in your quiver and we found so many creative young women for this wow. show because we were focusing on women yeah who were amazing artists many who knew how to animate many knew how they knew how to edit they knew how to you know make wow. music that they could put on their videos so we were really working what we would do is we would find people on youtube who were oh. starting channels and doing things but they weren't making money they yeah. weren't growing an audience because it takes a lot of time and a lot of you know you got to be super consistent and it's hard to grow when you're just an individual creator and so we would reach out and say, hey, I love the videos that you're doing and, and the channel you're building. I'm interested in doing a video about this. Would you be interested in doing this for us if you know I hired you to work for us and do some videos? And they could also still keep working on their own channel and doing their own thing. And then they'd make something for us over here. This so we found our creators so from you, the So YouTube you platform. organically reach out. You mm-hmm. say, we've got a deal for you. They're, mm-hmm. of course, probably thrilled. And like, what's the age group of these girls? They were in there, I would say they were 18 to 30. Okay, so it's mostly people that are in college or out of college. So it's not like they're... Yeah, the high schoolers were, I mean, they were hiring kids that were still in high school. We didn't really do that. Right, that's harder to work with. I mean, they have school. And minors and... Yeah, Yeah, right, all those roles. So then you created these organic girl, young women, I guess we can call them. Mm -hmm. 
And then, as you mentioned earlier, the goal was kind of like you said, to push it up the chain. Have these now morphed into something else beyond the channel? So when we saw what was happening with this breakout hit, something scary, it took us, it was another fork in the road. First there had been you know, yeah. four channels and there right. was a fork because one was succeeding and now there were six or eight shows and one was breaking through and really growing faster than the others. So we had to make another choice. We thought, why don't we focus on this one show for the next nine months and see what had happens? And we looked at something scary and we said, okay, this is a, you know, a great piece of, of IP. Where else can it also work? So the first place that we looked was podcasting. And the reason was because it was kind of a storytelling yeah. format yeah. and the creator has a great voice. So I knew that she would work in, in Multiple, audio. Yeah. And so we partnered with studio 71, who is our uh, network that we work with. And they launched a pod, they were launching a podcast network about the same time. So we thought, okay, great. And they said, we think something scary would be great. So off we went. And that was about 15 months ago. And now the podcast has exceeded everyone's expectations. It shows up in the top podcasts of the week and series of the week on Apple Podcasts. Wow. Week after and it's lucrative. Week and, and it's lucrative. And it's making as much or more money as the YouTube channel does That's now. what I'm going to ask. So is it, are they living at the same time? Are you still doing the content for you? But it's the same thing. You're filming it and you're recording it. So it's the exact same content. People are either watching it or listening. Yeah, it's a little bit different in that. So in the video series, we're continuing to do the video series every week. It goes up on YouTube, a new episode of Something Scary with the animation. And then we take the audio from that story, which is about eight minutes, and we read another three or four stories Got that are also ghost stories. And that's one and we podcast. Edit it all together, and that becomes one 30-minute wow. podcast. And the super exciting thing that happened is once we focus on one channel, and this is because of YouTube and the nature of YouTube, the channel took off and started growing even faster because people knew exactly what they were getting and why they were coming there. Yeah. Because we did have you know, six or eight different series we were running every week. But then once we were only about this something scary, it just kind of blew up. So now we almost have 2 million subscribers on the channel wow. who watch the videos so cool. every week. And then we said to them, hey, if you want more something scary, come listen to our podcast. And over they went to wow. listen to the podcast. Now you need a cookbook. Now I need a cookbook. <laughs> I mean, that's obviously the next exactly. thing. Yeah, I mean, there's such a big, I mean, there's <laughs> so much opportunity when you have yeah, it's a amazing. really engaged fan base yeah. to do that. It's incredible paranormal. And especially I think with, um, what's the one with Kristen's twilight and all that. Like, I feel mm -hmm. like that kind of started that whole YA ghosty thing. Yeah. You and know? Like, I always think it's kind of like the stranger things audience. Yes, probably a hundred percent. My daughter is like right in there. She exactly. loves that stuff. Not my thing, but I get it. Right. And you might watch with her. Yeah. I'll it watch might a little. Co -viewing, yeah. Right. We hear some of our, you know, audience even say, Oh, I watched my mom. I oh, saved yeah. your episode to watch with my mom this weekend. There's plenty of adults that love this stuff. Yeah. yeah it's not necessarily just like a millennial or generation Z thing at all. No, it's, it's so that's cool. So, you're, so you've gone in this so whole this other is, direction. Yeah. So now we're working to build this brand something scary yeah it's on snapchat weekly now wow. and it's we're developing a tv show around so it cool. and so i think it's it's been a super exciting um process um to be part of it's so exciting and it's so cool that like now that we're finishing up to, to think about where you started 
and to think about and not to sound like super cheesy, but really like you're a storyteller. Right. So in the end, that's what this is, even though it's looks completely different than what you started doing and document, you know, blue chip documentary TV. Now you're doing, you know, YA paranormal short form scripted. It seems crazy, but it's really not. Yeah. I mean, at the, at the core, something scary is telling a story, yeah. right? We're, we're, we're telling a story yeah. about something that could have happened or did happen. If you believe in ghosts, you know, it depends if these things are happening or are real or not. People say, are these stories real? Like, well, yeah. what Does do it think? matter? Does it matter? <laughs> but you're, it's a still, it's a storytelling format at its core. And that's what's popular now, whether it's on television, yeah. documentaries, whether it's on it, you know, the podcast explosion that we see going yeah. on at the core of all this is storytelling. And that's, what's super exciting to me because that is, I think why I got into the business in the first yeah. place was yeah. because I loved stories and I loved reading and writing stories way back when I started. And that's what I wanted to do. And the, the opportunities that keep opening, it keep, it keep evolving as media and the landscape involves, there's more and more opportunities. And so the opportunity to move this into becoming a podcast. And now I'm launching two other podcasts because now I'm suddenly in the podcast space also. <laughs> and those are similar to something scary in are, the same genre. And those are similar, but one of them, which is why I bring this up is one of them that we're working on now is a 12 part scripted series that we will release as a podcast. Very cool. And I've never been in the scripted business. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. I keep, just like you said, I yeah. keep as, as the landscape, you know, evolves and the opportunities evolve, you find yourself being able to work across and in places that you never yeah. And then that scripted podcast becomes a scripted series for CW or yeah. Netflix or whatever. And it just, it's, you just keep turning and turning and turning, turning. and turning it because I know that the audience who likes something scary is yeah. also going to like a kind of YA scripted of horror series. And so we thought, well, why don't we do that? Because that's a, a whole nother opportunity that we haven't really begun to exploit. And also podcasts are so much easier. I mean, it still involves a lot of production value, but you know, coming from, it just, it, it eliminates a whole layer, which is really nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it almost, I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. You're like, am I it's, cheating? Did I forget yeah. to do something? Yeah. We can't really be ready to produce you. Yeah, no, we no, we're just, just going to do and it. Here we are. We're going to do it. Yeah. I, I do like that about, about podcasts. Yeah. The and listen, simplicity. it's exploding. I mean, this is, I'm trying to transition more into that space because, you know, there, TV takes so long, first of all, compared to other things where you can make things happen so much quicker on podcasts. And plus it's really exploding because there's a lot of money to be made in a, in a shorter amount of time. And the thing is, is like, I know for myself, cause I, I'm a huge consumer of podcasts, you know, I, you can take them on the road with you. You're in the car, you're cleaning the kitchen, you're in the bathroom, you know, you're folding laundry. Like you can't do, I want to see when I'm watching something, I'm going to look at it. I want to just listen to right. it. It's a focused. talk show, you know, the today show or something, but podcasts can come with you. And I think that's the big, you know, taking a dog on the walk. Like it's, it's a, it's such a great medium. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's a, it opens up a whole nother opportunity to engage with an audience. Yeah. Right. Well, this is super exciting, Gail. I'm excited for you. I feel like you're doing something. I don't know anyone else doing what you're doing, especially coming from our world originally. So I'm really happy for you. 
And it's so cool to be able to keep reinventing yourself and getting excited about new chapters. So that's an inspiration. I really am inspired and I'm sure my listeners will be too. Oh, thank you. Thank you. No, I feel very fortunate and very grateful for all the opportunities that I've had. Yeah. And I hope I can keep, keep going and, and, and I'll, you know, kind of engage with all the new things that are on the horizon. I think you will be. <laughs> Just do me one favor, get rid of TikTok. Can, can you make that a somehow a mission? I don't know if I can do that by myself. One, yeah. Whatever it <laughs> takes. It's bigger than me to take yeah. down TikTok. I don't care. Do um, it. Yeah. No, it's... Um, it's a little bit annoying, but <laughs> there are worse things that our kids could be doing. Sometimes yes. I think about that too. You because are right. the thing that TikTok is, it's, it is a little bit, it's, it's funny. It's most sweet. Of the time yeah, it's, it's sweet mostly and innocent funny. until you hear like really bad light, you know, when I'm yes. like, whoa, whoa, yes. what's going on there? Yes. But it, yeah. and it, and <laughs> sometimes I think like there's a lot of laughing yes. and a lot of entertaining right. going no, and on. No, we need that right now form. too. And we all need that. All right, Gail, thank you so much for doing thank this. Thank you so much. 